All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fucksters? What the fuckadelics? What the fucknicks? What the fuckettes? What the fuck nuts? I don't even know if I've said that one in a long time. How are you? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. Welcome to it. How's it going? Are you guys all right? Are you doing all right, man? You, are you doing okay? What's going on? Snap out of it. Don't fucking fall into a hole. Look, we're all in this together, most of us, who aren't standing on the steps of Capitol buildings, dressed like we're prepared for war. Random flags, dressed like characters, some sort of video game. Jesus Christ. Where's the demand for more tests? No. Our sense of freedom in this country is very shallow almost infantile, very short-sighted. Not too many people thinking about the long game. More about like, when can I eat at the place I like? I want to eat at the place I like. Why? No one can tell me I can't go to Wiener Schnitzel and eat inside if I want in my bandana hat. With my goggles on and my gun, I'll eat hot dogs. I don't know where that's coming from, people. What's wait, Is there any Dewiner Schnitzels left? This is not a paid plug. I remember Dewiner Schnitzel. Do you? Get a crop dog at Dewiner Schnitzel or the Chicago style, which had the tomatoes on it, which I didn't like, um, or the chili dog, which was okay. I was a crop dog guy, which was weird. There was something about kraut. When you're in high school, you know, the other fellows were like, Kraut? I'm like, yeah. I was way ahead of the curve in this probiotic business. I knew what gut health was back when I was going to the Dweiner Schnitzel in high school, getting a Kraut dog with mustard, two or three of them. They were eating chili dogs. I'm like, you guys are going to pay for that shit. It's all about the gut. It's all about the gut. Some of you are asking, what about the hot dog? Dude, you know, you got balance. Kraut, sausage. You know what I mean? You want that fight to go on. That is the eternal conflict between probiotics and what the fuck did you just eat? What's the fuck? What is wrong with you, man? How are we to... Even the probiotic bacteria are like, dude, we, I mean, you make it a little easier. Jesus Christ. By the way, I'm going to talk to Dan Levy today of Shit's Creek, the other Dan Levy. I talked to another Dan Levy a few weeks ago, Dan Levy. Now I'm talking to Dan Levy. A lot of you thought that Dan Levy was going to be Dan Levy, but no, it was not Dan Levy. Today is Dan Levy. Sorry for those of you who are disappointed by Dan Levy. No one's more disappointed by Dan Levy than Dan Levy. So today, Dan Levy is here. It's kind of here. I talked to him on the thing. Shit's Creek, it's a fun show. I talked to his father, Eugene, a while back. I'll talk to uh, Dan Levy about his father, Eugene Levy, and how I did with Eugene Levy. I think I did pretty well with him. Uh, You know, here's the thing. I know you're over it. Look, I'm over it. I want nothing more than to just be able to go do things, talk to people, not wear a mask. I'm not even sure what I'd like to do. How about socialize in a real way? But look, the point is, Despite the fact that some states are opening and that the leadership is non-existent 
or nebulous. There's still a lot of virus out there. We're all sick of it, I know, but there's virus out there. You can't avoid it just because you've decided it's time. Your gut tells you, my gut tells me it's okay. Fuck your gut. I mean, there is some leadership if you happen to have a a decent, thoughtful, empathetic, concerned governor or mayor. But the leadership at the top is not giving any impression that they're leading anything. Got an email from a guy who's in a a nursing facility, a nursing home facility. He's got, he's there for some other reason. It's a it's a convalescent home. He's convalescing from mental problems with a lot of older people. There's the virus is in the place. It's in Chicago. And it's it really made me think that like those people are incredibly vulnerable and it's a fucking disaster. But Jesus, man, the reality for most people right now is that we're without leadership and without guidance and without any prognosis of how this is going to end And so for people in vulnerable situations like nursing homes, long-term health facilities, prisons, public housing, it's even fucking more terrifying. And this guy, he's in Chicago, Cook County. One in four COVID deaths are at the nursing home. So he's right to, he's got it, you know, he's got a right to be, to be fearful. But as I said before, you know, if you're lucky to live in a state where the citizens are concerned and the majority and that the governmental leadership mayors and governors and people in the healthcare professions and law enforcement are are kind of like on top of the fact that look just because you're tired of this and just because what's sort of coming down from the top is that uh hey it's kind of going away it's not really i don't want to be a downer but hang in there let's lighten it up a little bit my buddy old friend of the show and me we don't talk much but I always liked him. Mike Kaplan, the comedian, that's M-Y-Q, Kaplan, K-A-P-L-A-N-Jew, has a new comedy album out. Mike Kaplan. It's called Mike Kaplan, a.k.a., and it comes out this Friday, May 8th. Uh, He's very funny, very tight writer, interesting man. An interesting, funny little man, that Mike Kaplan. I don't mean little and little, but he's, he's short. And I'm not saying that in a bad way. I think he would agree with me. You can pre-order Mike Kaplan, a.k.a. right now at BlondeMedicine.com. That's B-L-O-N-D-E, BlondeMedicine.com. And Mike is M-Y-Q for reasons. M-Y-Q. So, yeah, that album's going to be funny. He's funny. And uh, enjoy. I questioned his, like, I, because he sent me the promo for it. And it had a goofy cover. And I said to him, I said, I believe that you will regret that cover eventually. I learned that early on as a comic. But now people don't have physical records that much. They do on vinyl, but not even CD cases. But there was a time where you just start to realize, like, you know what doesn't age well almost ever? Comedy album covers. I know you thought it was a good idea to wear that hat or to make that goofy-ass thing or to be in that goofy-ass situation or to be wearing that goofy-ass shirt or making that dumb face. But 15, 20 years from now, you're going to be like, Jesus Christ, look at that fucking idiot. Almost anybody. Go look at some comedy album covers. All right, here's the other thing I'm noticing about my life right now. And this is very specific, but um, 
I'm I'm here with uh, Lynn Shelton, who is staying at my house. We're not living together. Quit pushing. Don't fucking pressure me, man. But I don't know how you guys are doing. Like, there was a time in my life where there seemed to be time and space to masturbate. Not so much anymore. Now, I don't know if everyone else is having this problem. I imagine if you're alone, God, who knows what you're up to? I mean, if you're alone, you've probably, you know, you've probably chafed yourself or rubbed it down to a nub or overrubbed your nub. Now, I'm going to make this multi-gendered. Be careful. Don't overrub the nub or rub it down to a nub. Those are your options. You don't want a calloused nub of either kind but i think it's better like in, and again i'm gonna i'm in, i'm grateful to be in the position i'm in but uh it's been nice to lay off it and just deal with the real thing you know kind of reconfigure myself because you know i gotta be honest with you if you get too used to the hand that's who you're dating yeah but that you know or the machine whatever whatever equipment you're using hand thing that makes noise thing you put in whatever you're doing but sometimes that's okay i'm not saying i'm not judging anybody I just noticed for myself, and I imagine people with wives and husbands and children that, well, you gotta, you gotta go out to the car to jerk off. Are people doing that? I bet you they are. Garage, behind the house. What are you doing? I just need some alone time. You're outside. I know. I can't. Hey. Enough of the jerk off talk. It's not okay yet. And I'm not a scientist, but I'm I'm listening to the people that are smart. Don't go, you know, just use common sense. It's you still got to be safe. You don't want to get this fucking thing, man. It's worse than the flu. Jesus. Hey, I know I want my freedom to go sit with some chicken at a place where you eat chicken. Fuck this shit, man. Finally, I can get a tattoo. Finally. Fuck, man. When was that going to end? Fucking tattoo parlor's open. I'm going to go down and get my scamdemic tattoo, said the guy who's going to have a fever in two weeks. Check out my scamdemic tattoo. <laughs> I don't know. The guy was wearing a mask. <laughs> I wonder if you could get it from the needle. <laughs> Scandemic tattoo. Oh man. I'm hot. I'm hot. Scandemic. So Dan Levy's a very talented, very funny, sharp kid. Sharp kid, this Levy. Love his dad. Love Shits Creek. It was nice to talk to him. Now you can hear me talk to him in your own fucking ears. His show. Shit's Creek just ended, but you can watch uh, seasons one through five on Netflix. The final season just ended. And here we are talking about many things. Dan Levy and me. So, Dan, don't uh, don't look so confused. I, I'm right here. I, it, right, <laughs> I need you. I need you to relax and and not look like a guy in the cockpit of a ship. That's just my face, Mark. That, That's just my face. They're driving a vehicle they don't understand. They're exactly. Like, that is my life in a nutshell. <laughs> Where are you? Are you here or there? 
I'm here. Yeah. I'm here in the heat, enjoying it very much. Yeah, I know. I, I have to put the heat, my... not the pandemic. No, obviously. the pandemic's not good. The heat is okay. No. I don't know. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know how long it stays okay. It can get pretty bad pretty quickly. You got good air yeah, conditioning? Yeah, that's the thing. I do. Yeah. Until it breaks and then... Exactly. And then, or else the entire <laughs> exactly. section of the, the city... The grid goes out. Yeah, the grid yeah. goes out. That's it. You, there's, yeah. every, there's something to panic about at all turns. Like now... Out here in my garage, it's like a, I had it made in. I had to have it made into basically an apartment, so I have another kitchen out here. Right. So I'm cooking in this one to not add extra heat into my house, which I could only imagine makes that tiny room even. I mean, I don't even it's, know if it's tiny. It's the first time I've used the oven, so we'll find out. Got it. I, I've, I've got a okay. lot going on, man. This is this is. <laughs> I'm balancing a lot of stuff. I mean, I've been such a fan of this this podcast that you know, I did not I did not see this kind of dynamic happening. I thought I would be coming to you. <laughs> well, you know, you could have. I, I I would have let you. It would have been a matter of your comfort level. I didn't know how to reach out to you. Uh, I am incredibly clean and hygienic at this point. I'm, it I'm is pretty, gloves and masks. Yeah, me too. I'm pretty clean, but you know, they it, there's no they make you feel like like maybe I I had it and I didn't know I have it and I could like mm-hmm. there's like no way. To know because there's no functioning testing situation. There's no at-home test. So everybody just yeah. kind of wanders through life going like, when I had that cough a couple months ago, was that it? Did I have it? Am I a carrier? Am I just find myself like l- sort of self-identifying as a silent carrier just at all times. Right. Well, I think that's... I just assume that, that's, that it has never left my body and that I will be walking the earth as a silent carrier for the end of time. I think that's sort of what they're anticipating, but I think that's also what they're trying to promote us to think in in terms of us being frightened enough of it to act appropriately. Yes. But what I'm saying is that... Yes, it is. I'm I'm easily (laughs) terrified, but I have to consciously fight back against fear. Mm -hmm. And this one doesn't... This does not seem to be the fight to fight. I don't think so, no. but that's just my opinion. <laughs> so you're not, you haven't been going out at all? No shopping, no nothing? You have anything to no. deliver? Oh, really? So you're, no. see, I got to yeah. go out. I'm out running a few times a week. I, I mean, I walk my dog. I go, I do sort of the, um, I do like a six to eight block circle around my house, but that's really been it. I went to my old apartment to pick up some um, mail and that was the first time I had been beyond my neighborhood in two months. Wow. And I sort of like wandered out like Mr. Burns, like radioactive Mr. Burns, (laughs) like into the, into the world, like big eyed and and just completely disoriented. Yeah. It was very strange. It's all very strange. And I don't know where it's going to end, but we do know it's weird. I, you know, what's going to happen when everyone's watched everything that's already been made. There will come a point where people have gone through the 900 million hours of Netflix content. And then what? Unbelievable. Chaos. So, okay. I talked to your father. He came over to my other house. It was the greatest, most enjoyable conversation. I had such a nice time listening to it. (laughs) And he was so um, eloquent. And he's, I mean, he has a mind that is constantly sort of moving and shaking. So it's hard to get him to kind of focus. Uh He can talk and talk and talk. Yeah. And I found that the conversation that you two had was so clear and he was so focused and um, and in the moment and his brain was so he's he's a daydreamer. Uh-huh. So to get him kind of really clear is uh, is a wonderfully rare and, and uh, lovely thing to to listen to. Oh, that's interesting. So so the character in the folk singing movie um, 
not too far off. Right. <laughs> from the real thing. <laughs> Probably his biggest stretch from an outward perspective. But from from a family member perspective, uh, very close to home. What, yeah. what was that one called? Something Wind? Uh, the Mighty Wind. The Mighty Wind. Yeah, yeah. That's so funny. But so yeah. you grew up mo- all in Canada mostly or what? Or here? Uh, mainly in Canada. I mean, we'd, we'd sort of come for spring break and we'd come for, for the summer times. Uh-huh. Um, but he made uh, a choice way back when to uh, to keep us in Canada and, and protect us from 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 this the precarious lifestyle of Hollywood, the, the gaping maws of this exactly. horrendous shithole mm-hmm. from from like going to crossroads or whatever. Right. Uh, so uh, but your folks are still together. Yeah, that's nice. It's very nice. Are they up in Canada? It's very nice. It's a nice example to sort of set, although at this point, completely unrealistic. Right. Um, for, for me, at least so far, um, they're here. They're here now oh, they're here. and they go back and forth. Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm thinking like, and I think I talked about this w- with your father, just in terms of politically, that it must be nice to know you can go there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, like on some level, this isn't your problem. Yeah. But in a, in a way, yes, there's, there's so many different layers to it. Cause at the same time, I feel like being here as a Canadian who has, um, healthcare and understands the benefits of it, it's almost more, I mean, you know, people who, who in America who understand uh-huh. the benefits of it are frustrated, but to actually come from a place where you know how positive that, that, impact on the society health on the society as a whole it has nothing to do about infringement on rights in fact it's it's quite the opposite well that's it well so americans are not they're uh, you know for the most part capable of really you know having any uh foresight (laughs) or 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 they don't know how these things apply to them they don't even understand the paperwork you can't get most of them to fill out the fucking census dan but go ahead it's a it is a tough brain teaser for a Canadian to be here and hear about kind of rights associated with healthcare. Um, it's it's all it's it's just a difficult thing. You don't believe it's, in it's, the it's a, in the insurance company's rights to gouge the consumer to the point where they can't afford to go to the doctor. You, listen, that's an American freedom, Dan. It is so free. <laughs> I can't think of anything freer than that. But that's a um, curious no, question. Uh, I don't think I've, I've asked anybody uh, this question. I mean, mm. as a Canadian, when you go to the doctor here, does do you call Canada and they cover it? How does that work? No, um, you. I, I'm. I mean, I'm fortunate enough to have health oh, insurance. Oh, right, because through the union, here, yeah, yeah, it covers it. Yeah, um, no, it's. Um, I, I don't know the actual. Then again, you're asking the wrong person because yeah. I really have no idea. You have dual citizenship, um, I don't, or are you uh, all can? I don't know. No. no. So you have you have um, like uh, you have the the union coverage here. I have yeah, yeah. I have sad right, insurance right, yeah. here, um, which is you know at this time a, a, a real blessing. So no shit. I, there might be, to be perfectly honest, there might be ways of writing off your your health expenses here, but I'm not really good with details. I always wondered I that. I don't like, read the like, paperwork, right. to be honest. I don't understand anything. I don't understand, uh, you know, where my money is. So I could barely <laughs> log into this conversation. <laughs> That's just an indicator of where I'm at, generally yeah, speaking. Yeah, because I've worried. I've wondered that when I was in Canada. Like, if I'm, I guess, if I'm shooting in Canada on a thing and something went wrong, you know, they would somehow mm-hmm. manage to take care of me. But I always wondered if I was yes, just a guy in Canada with this insurance here. To, how does you know? Not not a conversation for you. So, 
<laughs> we don't need to. I think credit cards cover a little bit of travel, sure, sure. Yeah. health insurance as well. I, I, okay. So, I, well, thank you. I'm for gonna, those out there that were interested. I, I will call Amex after this and make sure that you're right about that. For Wonderful. when I'm able to move to Canada uh, next year, exactly. I'll at least be covered for the first bit of time on my Amex. Um, we'll go back with you and we'll all live in a nice commune in Canada. What, what town, what, what city did you grow up in? Toronto. Well, that's like a big, nice city. But the weird thing is, like, and I talk about this before, like, and maybe you can, like, here's, okay. So mm -hmm. I used to go to Canada and I think like, well, this is kind of like America without the panic and and just, <laughs> you know, in, ingrained fear that, you know, moves through the culture. And I, I, I still mm -hmm. think that's true. But part back then I thought like, it's a little slow, it's a little boring. But now I go back up and I'm like, this is how humans are, are supposed to interact. And I know that Canada has its problems, you know, clearly mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, bigotry and, and mistreatment of indigenous people, like some of the same problems we have. Yeah. But I think the, the, the basic underlying fact is that if people are sick, they can go to the doctor. If they're dying, they'll be taken care of. And that takes a load off uh, societally, right? It, Even just getting stitches and going in right. to the emergency room and having them be not having to worry about it. I got stitches here and it cost me $3,000. Oh my god. Cuz I went to the wrong emergency room that wasn't covered under my insurance company. Oh, you went to a you went to an urgent care? I went to an urgent care yeah. with a, my finger like sliced open. It's a racket. And the person behind the desk after I had obviously paid and gone through the whole thing just said, "You know, you should have just bandaged it up and gone to a walk-in clinic the next day cuz you would have paid less." Right. And I just kept thinking to myself, so that's what that's how this works. We just have to like basically sever our fingers off, bandage it up temporarily for a night, and hope that the next morning Dude, you, everything's fine. You got to work your own angle here, man. That's what's going on with the coronavirus. They can't even supply hospital supplies wild. to states because they're like, let them get it on the free market. Let's make this shit work. It is wild. But, but my 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 talking about Canada is like now I you know what I used to think was boring. I find very comforting. And I feel that, mm -hmm. and maybe I'm maybe I'm romanticizing, but it seems like there is a, an element of tolerance and integration in Canada that is sort of uh, you know passive and not confrontive, and people seem to cohabitate and live multi ethnicities uh, w without this, the same kind of tension we have here. Is that correct? In your experience, you know, I, yeah, I've been talking about it recently. I do, I do, I can't speak really for the country as a whole because I've come from Toronto, which I think is a very big liberal. Yeah. City. Right. Um, I'm sure that there are terrible things happening to to people across the country um, that are just not being quite as widely publicized as what's happening in America. You mean like in, up up in the uh, in the rural areas with the French hillbillies? One one never knows. But I think to have had gay marriage passed so early on, um, you know, for me, I, I just keep thinking my high school experience was very different because when I was bullied in school or when I was feeling isolated because of the fact that I was gay, I knew when I went to bed at night um, that my country was on my side, that my country right. recognized my rights. Big difference. I couldn't imagine what that high school experience would be like. And I had very open parents who I knew would be accepting of who I was. The struggle was really kind of mine at the time. Um, in terms of when and how I would tell them. But I couldn't imagine being bullied in school or having parents at home who were not supportive 
and then going like laying your head on your pillow, knowing that your own country doesn't think that you are deserving of love. I mean, that is a really intense reality to experience. Oh, and I feel like in a way and an oppression. Yeah. It only exacerbates yeah. that kind of loneliness. Right. Um, so even in sort of subliminal ways where you're not actively thinking about that at the time, those are the messages that are being sent mm. out, which I think send really damaging shockwaves uh, to minority communities um, who are not feeling seen or or respected. That's a it's a pretty tough thing. And then you know to compound see, be seen or respected, then they no longer feel safe. Like there's a tr well, of course. A tr yeah. And I mean, you know, I think safety is a totally different thing in Canada and America because we don't have the kind of I don't even know how to describe the gun culture here. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, but safety, I mean, quite literally, the, the gun laws here are so horrifying yeah. that, you know, people do fear, f I mean, be, for their for their safety, quite literally, because who knows who's holding a gun and it's been become it's become very clear that people using those guns um oftentimes rarely have any repercussions <laughs> to face once they've used them particularly on you know um the african-american community yeah. here but the big plan for the gun people is that they think if everyone has one the shit will just work itself out <laughs> which is such which it's it's like in canada i feel like there's a passivity to any kind of bigotry or intolerance uh -huh. It, it might exist, but it, it's not quite as activated as it seems in America. Well, yeah, it happened. It seems it to be seems, happening a little bit, though. People are very angry here and very it's like that that, you know, yeah. walking dead picture of those protesters against the glass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the middle of a pandemic stream screaming for their their freedom. Yeah. I mean, what do you do now with those people? who will inevitably get sick and need a ventilator. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, it, it does seem to be, there There seems to be isolated events of massive gun violence in Canada, but culturally it's not an issue. Well, recently, yeah. like even just this this week, yeah. there was the biggest shooting in Canadian history. Yeah, it's, it's, it's terrible. Awful. So what, when you came out, like what was, like when you speak of a struggle to figure out how to, you know, talk about it to your parents, what, what is, how does that work? Like what was going through your mind, a timing thing or, you know, how to present it or. It's such a, I mean, if you think about the fact that nobody else has to proclaim who they are sexually attracted to. Right. Nobody other than members of the LGBTQ community have to publicly proclaim who they are attracted to. Right. And when you're in your teens and you're struggling with your sexuality and you're struggling with sexuality, just generally speaking. Yeah. It is such an unnatural and oddly inappropriate thing to ask a teenager to do. <laughs> so I think just generally declare yourself, you know, you're, 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 step you're forward. Sort of, exactly. <laughs> like it's embarrassing to, you know, to, to talk about that if you're insecure about it in the first place, yeah. let alone have it be a proclamation that others you in some way right. in the big sort of social world. Um, right. The layers you know, are like you're, you're, you're in terms of like being out in the world as a sexual being is, is not really happened yet. And, and yeah. like ask any kid if they were if right. they want to run up to their parents and say, hey, I'm attracted to this kid in my class. Yeah. 
Like no one's doing that. Right. So then to have to say it as a teenager, and not only are you saying I'm attracted to this kid in my class, but I'm also attracted to this kid in my class who is of the same sex. And that opens up a whole other can of internal concerns and oftentimes external concerns, depending on your relationship with your parents right. and your parents' beliefs. Right. So, I think in the back of my mind, I knew that my parents were going to be accepting. I, I knew that yeah. deep down. But there's still that kind of fiber of adolescent doubt or even for adults, there's a level of doubt because you don't know how people are going to respond. And you've been almost conditioned through what you see in the media yeah. to be met with persecution of some kind. So there's so many different layers to the experience that lead to this almost, in my case, I was overthinking the experience um, and, and fearing what if this does put a wedge in my relationship with my parents. What if it does make them think of me differently or think of me less? Not that that ever would have been the case, but those are the fears that you sure, go through sure. because your brain is not fully developed. Right, right. And you're just trying to grapple with, you know, with the reality that is slowly coming to you in, in little spurts and bouts. Right. There's no, there's really, you know, it, it's rare that there's confidence on any level, you know, let alone this oh, yeah. defining. I'm still not a confident person in any regard. So the, to, to think back of me as a, as a teenager, I mean, my mom asked me if I was gay. Yeah. Um, I didn't even have, I couldn't even do it back then. <laughs> and I was very grateful that she found that opportunity and found an opportunity to, to talk about it that felt open and, and she didn't impose it upon me. It was really the right time. And I think I needed that kind of handholding yeah. through the process. Um, a lot of people you know, did it without that. And I really admire that kind of strength. Um, I needed some help from my parents. I needed them to almost say, we know what's going on and we're okay with it. Yeah. Um, just let's be out with it yeah. because I feel like it's affecting your morale. Yeah. And did it, it did it, was it a load off? Yeah. Yeah. It was a huge, I mean, you're, you're hiding your complete identity. Yeah. Yeah. So, you, so who are you? So your mom just like came out of nowhere and was like, can we talk? We were you? having lunch. And she just, yeah, she, she asked and I said, yes, <laughs> over lunch. And then you finish your lunch over lunch. Yeah. And, you know, she was really great about it. And she, um, you know, she asked if, if I wanted her to tell my dad and I said, yes. <laughs> and so she did. And then my dad very emotionally, um, you know, told me that he loved me and oh. that it didn't change anything. And, um, you know, it's, it's very lucky. I, I, I'm, I'm very lucky to have that kind of support around me. Oh yeah, for sure. They, I couldn't imagine it, especially having talked to him, that it would be anything different than that. You know what I mean? <laughs> that would be a strange 180 for Eugene Levy. I think yeah. to come out as just a giant homophobe. Yeah. That would not. No, that does not track with him. Yeah, he, 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 he seems to be processing, you know, every moment of his existence as something surprising. Um, mm -hmm. Is that agreed? <laughs> but uh, it's a, he's a remarkable creature. Yeah, he really is. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's it takes those kinds of of wonderfully strange minds to come up with the kind of work that I think he has. Right, and you know you seem to have some you know genetically uh, and and also uh, natural uh, uh, proclivities yourself in the comedic way. Uh, that like I can't, you know. I mean, I can't imagine though. Like in my mind, which is usually wrong. I mean, were you as a child? Are you? Uh, you have sisters, brothers? 
I have a sister, yeah. yeah, a younger sister. Were you guys, you know, was the SCTV gang sort of, you know, family to you in any way? Like, I- yeah, even the, I mean, even the 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 members of that group that were not around us all all the time, even just be, the conversations were so just around. Yeah. I mean, these people lived in our home we watched episode of uh, episodes of sctv my dad would kind of put them on for they us lived in and, your home you know Who lived in your home well i mean lived oh, in the oh, sense oh. that they were you know we have you know back in my parents house my dad has just a rows of upon rows upon rows of every single vhs oh, sctv yeah, episode yeah, yeah. So, you know, some nights my sister and I would would ask my dad to kind of pick an episode that he liked and we'd put it on and watch it. So by in our homes, I mean that these faces and these personalities sort of existed all around us. And, you know, I think um, Marty Short has been friends with my dad since before they were when they were living in Hamilton. 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 I got in trouble in Hamilton with the with the people of Canada. Uh-oh, what happened? Well, nothing. I was shooting there and I and I and I explained uh, I think on Twitter on Instagram exactly what Hamilton is without being even <laughs> nasty and somehow it became clickbait at, at CBC somewhere and then it became like who is this outsider speaking negatively about this shithole? Wow. <laughs> Hamilton I had to learn has about the beautiful history of Hamilton and that it's trying a beautiful rich history. Hamilton has certainly over the past, I would say, 15 years come up as a place where young families are now living because I think it's a slightly more affordable lifestyle there. I understand exactly what's happening there. But my observation was there is a a type of of of, you know, poverty and derelict and and, Mm. drug addict sort of culture that is very Mm. parades in a way that I hadn't seen in a long time. It's sad, but it is what it is. You know, there it, right. there it is. That is definitely a, a side of, of Hamilton. Yeah. There is you're driving through some stuff every yeah, um, yeah, for sure. Yeah. When we would visit my dad's um, great aunts, we would we would take. The oh, trip. so you had that thing. So there so there was like a Jewish kind of community. You'd go see the, the Jewish great aunts in Hamilton. Yeah, we would go like once a month or once every couple and they months lived in the to old visit house. my dad's great aunts. Um, they lived in a very. um classic sort of 60s 50s 60s 70s kind of apartment oh, right, complex right right that smelled like uh, um, weird food yeah and, and a little bit like mothballs yeah, and yeah. someone's cooking oh, it's so nice um, so nice that you had that yeah and we would go and they used to live very close to each other both aunts lived around the corner from one another and uh and we would go and and spend the afternoon and um oh it's so nice yeah my, it's so nice that you had they were that. very what were their names Auntie Ray uh-huh. and Auntie Mary. I just love that the notion of that because you know I have uh, the you know the, when I was growing up the older Jewish relatives that live in these places that have a certain smell to them and there are other mm-hmm. old you know Jews living there and it was just you know it was this other generation and it was sort of uh, strangely you know comforting and and and, t- yeah. and timeless but but you know there. It, it, it definitely does something to your character to, to be able to engage. Of course. With- and they would, I mean, my auntie Ray would cook, um, these sort of Jewish yeah. delicacies that only she could cook yeah. every, like my aunt 
has tried to to recreate the recipes and for some reason it just right i mean she's done it well but it's not quite the same there's a magic to that to that world there, the legacy there, of there these is women. there is my aunt my mother's sister can make my grandmother's chopped liver pretty well but mm-hmm. and i don't even know if these people are generally great cooks but it, there is something comforting about it because you grow up eating that stuff o- yeah. only at their house so exactly you know, that it, it, it does it's not about how how skillful they are it's about mm-hmm. you know what they put into it and the entire environment of that it's such a sensory experience yes. too i can right. remember everything about it i can remember the taste of the food i can remember what her apartment looked like right. i can remember the kind of plastic on the couches and the um just how kind of warm and inviting that space was and and, uh, and then you get this window into you know who your father is yeah you know like, you know, this, mm-hmm. you know, these are the people that you, when he was a boy, these were the people that, you know, they all lived near each other yeah. right back then. So there's this mm-hmm. like community thing that doesn't exist anymore. Like everybody lived, you know, five miles from everybody else. Not even. Yeah. And that's what yeah. Hamilton used to be, huh? Yeah. I mean, you know, he and Marty, I guess, were living in Hamilton when Godspell first came to right, Toronto. Right. And my dad, you know, convinced Marty to audition. Right. And they both got the job. And then that production of Godspell in, in Toronto became this kind of legendary yeah, production. I, Victor Garber, Andrea Martin, yeah. um, Paul Schaefer. Um, so it's amazing to think back to that time, especially in the early days where, where you know, he was just a cool kid in Toronto. Just right. It's wild. Lighten the comedy scene uh, on fire with all of his friends it's, who just happened to be world class legendary comedic voices Isn't that wild and it's happened in canada yeah. before i mean you know it happened again kind of i mean co- co- comedy in canada that's why i was kind of looking at and where i was sort of going with my slightly condescending statements about canada's boringness is that the <laughs> the, the interesting thing even looking at you know how you came up in show business that there is a canadian show business you know, and it, and it. Oh yeah. And I used to say that, like, because of like the the state run uh, the uh, run networks that you know, if you are a comedian or an actor in Canada, eventually you'll get your turn. <laughs> you know, if, sure. Right. If you work hard enough, you will you will find your right, place for a couple of years at least. The amazing thing about Canada is that the industry is not quite as polished as it is in America. So what you are able to do in Canada is try your hand at everything and you have right. to try your hand at everything and what did you I mean, start what, with i started uh as a host on mtv but before like when uh, you were a kid now like now who were who oh. the people that so you brought your father and marty are tight but i mean like yeah. i mean Catherine, who i've also talked to i've not talked to marty i don't know why uh but i talked to Catherine, who i love a lot um mm-hmm. are, are is she someone that you grew up knowing well, she was in Los Angeles for a lot of right. it. So I would see her sort of sporadically and obviously know of her. Right. And I think once I became a teenager and, you know, my dad and Chris Guest started writing their <laughs> Did you know him pretty movies, well? Movies. Chris? I, I mean, I, I've met him over the right, years. Right, and, right. um uh, you know, once my dad and Catherine started to work together on those movies, I, I saw more of her. Yeah. Um, but it was always peripherally and it was always in the context of a, of work or um potentially at, at you know at a, a group gathering some kind of social gathering but it was never um it was never like the, the shorts the shorts are 
essentially extended oh, okay. family. That's what that's that's what I sort of was wondering because I always want yeah. like you know it's still this weird thing I hold on to in some kind of um, you know fanish kind of way that when these groups of people were, who have done such great work together, I always kind of want or imagine them hanging out together, but they never do. They never do. I th- well, I think Catherine, my dad, and Marty hang out a lot. Yeah. Um, Marty, you know, lives around the corner from my parents' house and is just, I mean, it's like a sitcom. Oh, good. Just okay. they're either over right. at his place or he's over at theirs. So they walk in the um, back door, look in the fridge, that kind of shit. It's really lovely to think about because I, in my, in my mind, I always go back to just the, the time that they've had together and the years that they've spent together and the fact yeah. that they have ended up blocks apart is just very cute to oh, me. Oh yeah, it's great. It's like we were talking about, it's like your aunts. Yeah. There's comfort there, Oh, no, for sure. So, but like for you, it was not, starting out, you you didn't, you weren't thinking in terms of comedy, or were you? No, I, I uh, no, I was, I did theater a lot. Like I was always kind of putting plays together. I put my elementary school play, produced it yeah. and wrote it and adapted it and put it on. Yeah. So I was always kind of making things um, in the theater world. And in high school, I, you know, we didn't have a drama program because our teachers were on strike. So my friends and I produced all the theater in our high school right. and adapted, you know, Clue for the stage and did these really kind of fun productions. So you were a theater guy. Um, you were a theater kid. I was a theater kid yeah. in high school. Right. Yeah. And then had such crippling anxiety about auditioning for acting in, in university that I just went into film production instead, thinking it was close enough to the theater program probably more practical that perhaps i could i suppose i really didn't like it at all yeah. um yeah. and eventually ended up <laughs> dropping out uh-huh. for a job on mtv but yeah it, it, it's amazing how confident you can be in, in chapters of your life and then how completely anxiety ridden and in, in uh, unsure you could be in other chapters it, it's, it's quite amazing as somebody who has you know really kind of clawed it out in show business was there any sort of concern or warnings from your father about pursuing that? Uh, no. Uh, God, they really are supportive. <laughs> they are very supportive. I think to a to a to a an extent that I was not wanting to necessarily associate with. I think growing up, especially in high school, in the in the plays that I was doing, my dad would always ask if you know I wanted help, and I would always say no, mm. um, because you know I think when you have a parent who is well known you try your best to separate and to be identified as something other than sure you know yeah. Eugene Levy's son which i know is sort of an easy thing to put a label on you know on someone and and hey, just, just, judge them accordingly like, you know just be, be happy that it's you're you're in the world you're in and you're not Jacob Dylan or <laughs> or, <laughs> or Sean right. Sean Lennon saying like you know i'm just going right. to be a singer songwriter exactly. but i'm going to be my own guy I, you know, mm-hmm. I think it, you got. I had the freedom to do that. You got a little easier go of it. <laughs> exactly. Um, so you know, for years, I would just keep saying to my dad, "No, I don't. I don't want your help. No offense, but no." And uh, and then you know, after eight years on MTV, well, let's talk about that a minute. Yeah. Before we get to you approaching him, for, like sure. when I, I remember the first time I went to Canada to work for the festival or whatever, and I, you know, mm-hmm. I did some stuff on Canadian MTV. I'm like, oh my god, this is just like ours, but not as exciting. Every, like, every, <laughs> like they have everything that we have. Only I don't know who these people are, and they seem to be a right. lot nicer here. You know, it was always yes. 
<laughs> it was always this. That's exactly what it was. Yeah. And a lot scrappier. Right. Because I remember where the, the building was. The the MTV building was like on a main street. And they it had was like, on the on Young Street in the Masonic Temple. It was an old Mason's. And temple. they had like a studio right in like right when you Correct. walked in. It was a whole kind yeah. of vibe thing. Roundabout. Right? Yeah. It was in the round. Right. Yeah. So yeah. so how do you get that gig? And do you, was that satisfying to you? Um, in, in ways, yeah. I mean, if I'm kind of connecting the dots of my life, yeah. yeah, I think it was a pretty crucial chapter. I never felt comfortable interviewing celebrities. I didn't quite uh, – I, I was better at the talk part of it. I liked – you know, uh, we had a little talk show for a while, and that was really nice. I got the job um, – a friend of mine was auditioning for it. I had just gotten back from six months uh, living in London where I had kind of moved to get over a bad relationship uh, and try and find myself because I was, you know, I was not a very confident person. And I came back from this kind of eat, pray, love situation in London and had a little bit more confidence than when what'd I you, left. What did you do in London? What'd you, what were you doing? I worked for a talent agency. I worked for ICM. Um in London for a bit, which was just, you know, a job that happened to, to come to me um, while I was out there and, and very quickly learned that I did not want to be an agent. That's good. Um, That was, that was learned that the first day. Um, You have to have a, a, you have to have a slightly compromised conscience to be an agent. (laughs) You have to be something. Um, But answering phones and, you know, working in the office and those offices are intense and, you know, it's it takes a type of personality to to succeed in that kind of environment. So it really, in a way, forced me out of my own, you know, self-consciousness. And by the time I got back to Toronto, had some kind of, you know, fiber of confidence to walk into this audition. And uh, at the time, I think they were they were putting together a, a reality show for finding the next MTV host. Uh. So we were all given a hundred dollars and told to go out and spend it and come back and, you know, talk about what you spent your money on. And so people came back with like, you know, Sarah McLaughlin CDs and a yoga mat. And (laughs) I had nothing but a receipt in my hand. And the producer said, well, where you don't, you don't have anything. And I said, well, I paid my cable bill for the next two months. So (laughs) thank you for that. Because if this goes south, I wanted to come out of it with something. Um, and someone there seemed to think that that was uh, hilarious, a ballsy move. And uh, and I ended up getting the job. But to your point, you know, it was a young upstart network. We were producing our own material. We were writing our own material. We were editing our own material. And that kind of freedom doesn't necessarily happen on American television. And I think in talking about, you know, a can- Canadian comics i think it can be applied for for a lot of people in in canadian entertainment well i think it's you true. are like i've talked to guys i think a lot of it has to do with the fact that that there is a factor the state-run element to the media there that enables mm-hmm. creators to just you know there, a lot of there's no kind of capitalistic hierarchy that says you know this has to be a hit they're sort of like well yeah. this seems interesting you guys go ahead and make try this. it yeah right and that le- you know it lends itself to a kind of like practical experience Mm. that a lot of people don't necessarily have here because you're only doing one specific job. So if you're a, you know, a host on television, you're reading copy, right? You're not necessarily in the edit phase, cutting your own tape, right? 
Um, I know that it happens in news quite a lot. Yeah. Um, but that kind of hands-onness, yeah, I think really leads to a scrappiness when Canadians end up end up making their way to America because they've really done everything. Yeah, yeah, um, a lot of yeah, and it's a it's a hands-on education that you wouldn't get. If you were working in Hollywood, you'd have to, you know, be a PA forever, and you know, exactly. But but also, you were coming up a little before it was real easy with technology, right? It was before that you could make an entire feature on your yeah. phone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but so okay, Completely. so you become like a so you're the host guy. You're you're getting confidence. I think I think it's funny that you you were working at a talent agency answering phones, and that somehow or another you came out of that more confident as opposed to less confident. It, it's a. It, <laughs> You mean like just pummeled to the ground, right? Right. right. Emotionally yeah, speaking, you, I think it was. Yeah. It, it speaks to your your character that you were like, "Fuck this! <laughs> I gotta, you know, I'm not gonna do." I that. have a very practical mind. Yeah, Mark. Yeah, I like if there's something that I don't, I, you know, for me it was like I was not able to pick up a phone. That was the level of my social anxiety. I got very scared about picking up a phone. Right. So for me. I have to fix that if I want to get to where I need to be cognitively. And so I'm very practical about fixing kind of problems that I see for myself as being hindrances to getting me closer to where I, I need well, I, to be. Well, I guess that's the point, right? Is that, you know, it's practical, but it's also courageous in the sense that if you realize the obstacle and then you choose to take it on, uh, on your own volition. Yeah, that's practical, mm-hmm. but that's also, you know, like, if I don't get over this, I'm going to be crippled by it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm a firm believer that most experiences are worthwhile experiences. And yeah. I think that's what I went into that, that, you know, right. um, chapter of my life hoping. Yeah. Um, and I also think, you know, when you are in, in your early twenties and in a weird kind of relationship, that's not making you feel very good. Right. You also kind of have this fire to change your life. Yeah. Um, you know, I feel like everyone in their early 20s has gotten that spark to just like, I need to shave my head and move to Morocco. Oh, yeah, I did um, that. I did that through my 30s. I, You know, there's right. a, a lot of attempts at uh, identity, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, yeah. good or bad, they tend to shape us in one way or another. Do you Now, how's the anxiety now? You all right? Did you have to medicate or... No, I didn't ever. Although I did try and do like natural, like herbal yeah. things, and I tried to, I tried to go the natural route sure. um, because I didn't Why feel not? like it was. I didn't. I wasn't crippled to the point where I felt like I needed medication. Medication, um, and I think it really came down to just some people find their footing later in life, um, and I think the more that I learned and the more that I put myself out there, the more confident I got. And then I think when you experience a level of success doing something, in my case, those first, you know, eight years at MTV built me into it was eight. Eight years of of talking about the hills. So, you know, you are forced to really examine you definitely definitely know how to improvise Um, then, you know. Exactly. Um, and I think from from the confidence and the and the marginal level of notoriety that I had received at my job at MTV, I slowly realized, okay, I do have something to say, yeah. and people seem to be responding to that. And um, were you acting too? No, I mean, other than just the the sort of inevitable stint on Degrassi. What is that? I don't know what that is. Degrassi is a, a Canadian franchise beloved by a lot of Americans. Um, which is kind of like 
how would you describe it? It's like the like quiet, slightly less polished step cousin of 90210. Oh, so it's this ongoing. Although I think the it's ongoing, and I think the early Degrassi Degrassi Street or whatever the first iteration of this franchise was actually inspired 90210. I think in some capacity because it was on in the 80s, and then they just kept doing you know, Degrassi, the next generation. So oh. if you are an actor working in Canada, inevitably so, over the past 30 years, yeah. you have done either a day or a couple days on Degrassi. It's a rite of passage. It's a rite of passage. It's a Canadian rite of passage. I mean, Drake is a prime example of, of someone who came out of the Degrassi <laughs> world and really skyrocketed to success. I think that's what makes Canadian actors so great in the same way that I think you know, a lot of British actors across the board are just great actors. Yeah. You find it's a, why British TV, you can, you know, eat, the day players are extraordinary because it's a it's a country that prides itself in the skill and the craft of acting. Yeah. You know, if you are staying in Canada as an actor, you are not, you know, sh you know, driving to Toronto with the hopes of becoming you know, Nicole Kidman. Right. It is a, an industry that is very much self-sustaining. And you work in it, and there's a, people have a wonderful experience in in the Canadian did, film and television industry. Did you do any training? I I did when I came out to Los Angeles for oh, yeah? the first little while. So, what was your interest level in 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 sort of as Shit's Creek sort of before it evolved? Mm -hmm. I mean, were you a, a comedy fan? Did you have uh, uh, heroes or, or, or sort of people you looked up to? No, no, not really. Huh? I was, I mean, uh, the funny thing is I don't really consider myself being in comedy. Really. I think we wrote a, a comedy um, and I appreciate comedy, but I've never been a comedy guy. I think a lot of like writers in, in LA have come from stand up backgrounds and are really sort of embedded in the comedy scene i think for business. me i mean my dad and i always considered schitt's creek to be a drama that just happened to have very funny circumstances so wait all right um, so now let's get around to so you do you do eight years on mtv and 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 what is yeah. there is there a, a, a an existential crisis or you you realize that's behind you there was that? actually i have the exact moment too I was on the MTV Movie Awards red carpet, hosting the carpet for MTV, yeah. and had a full-blown panic attack. Because when you host these red carpets, they give you just a binder of names of actors and what they're doing and the jobs that they're working on. And you have to memorize it all so that if, you know, Sienna Miller right. comes walking down the carpet, yeah. you have to know what she's working on, why she's here, what she's promoting, what she's nominated for. And I was so overwhelmed by the sheer volume of, of, of information combined with an intimidation factor of just meeting all these actors and people that I had respected that the, <laughs> at the end of that experience, the cameras turned off and I burst into tears and I had no idea why. Um, I've become a more emotional person as I've, as I've gone on, but back then I was not, certainly not a crier and I just had such a, a cathartic release. And in that moment, I realized that I was tired of asking people questions about work that I really admired. I wanted to start doing work that someone one day might want to ask me a question about. That was really the shift 
in my brain. That was your that was and your uh, telephone moment from that the, was from, my from the exactly. uh, from the agency. You know, like yeah. is that moment where you're like, I'm I'm done here. That was the turning point, and I, I just realized like I didn't have the I did it didn't bring me joy. Asking people about their lives didn't bring me joy. I wanted to go out there and start making something for myself oh. that that you know Boy, might a... might intrigue other people. Yeah, so. I, I don't know that people, regular people, uh, working people, like this is this is our industry. This is our job. But you know, to mm -hmm. to sort of service uh, the machine in that way. Where you you just sort of have to pretend to be interested. You're limited in mm -hmm. what you can ask. Uh, mm -hmm. They're rehearsed in what they're responding with. Uh, yeah, spontaneity is happens, but it's 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 fleeting. That that like it's a fascinating side of the industry to have worked in. Yeah, it's a soul and drain. And now though. to be on the other side, I have such a respect for the process, and I know that so many actors see junkets and see interviews is kind of you know as work yeah but i think what a lot of them aren't understanding is that it's also work for the people who are asking those questions right and they and, and, the people, and they're they you know you look at them and you're like you i know what's going on we know what's happening here let's try to <laughs> nobody wants to ask a celebrity <laughs> about their personal life yeah that is what a producer is forcing you to ask because the show gets a headline out of it but the person asking those questions is not waking up in the morning saying gosh, I want to put this person on the spot and make them feel uncomfortable by asking them. I mean, it is, it's just part of the job. And, you know, I, is that it, what they asked you to do? Tricky. Because there are some, Oh yeah. I think in entertainment reporting, there's a lot of questions that are, you know, I was even asked at times to just slip questions in that might not have been approved by the public. You're constantly trying to get those moments, particularly now, that can live on the on the internet oh. where an actor is sort of caught off guard and then you suddenly get that moment of tension that becomes something that the news outlet See, can then put out into the world and i'm and so get naive views by i mean i know they do that yeah i know that happens and i know they kind of kind of um poach my interviews to find moments like that um, sure but like I don't know that like I I think I was naive because I but now I realize like I was a victim of that and you know and I don't assume that people are doing that and I certainly don't assume that you know when I meet an individual that that's their agenda it's weird I, maybe I'm too trusting but I did that guy Andy Cohen show is that that guy's name? oh yeah and mm -hmm. that's what all that show is about is is generating awkward moments for Bravo and for clickbait you know and I mean I. You have to sort of go into that show knowing that it is intentionally uh, provocative. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't really know that, and I found it very assaultive. Okay. You know, I found. I, <laughs> okay. You know, I, I was just sort of like, it's like it's all happening so quickly. And yeah, it's, it's it, a very quick show. I was just, I was, I was, I was disappointed in the whole thing. You know, because it's right. just because I can say no to things. It's like that's not my fucking world. You know, what do I need right. to, you know, I don't know anything about the housewives of anything. So like, right, you, right, you know, right. now I got to like get up to speed or just be the idiot that's sort of like, I don't know. Like, fuck it. <laughs> well, I feel like someone who you were working with should have given you a heads yeah, up. Yeah, well, they that. felt bad after, you know, they thought right, that it okay. would be like, you know, a lot of people watch this, but it, you know, it might, you know, might be weird, but you can do it. And then they're like, mm -hmm. they're asking me weird kind of half personal questions about I've... people I know. And I'm like, what the fuck? Right. What what is yeah. and you and you're in a live situation, so there's no protection. So I think that was the thing that bothered me. It's like mm -hmm. I, I'm pretty good at improvising, but I'm not going to sit there and throw other people under the bus when you're put on the spot. Yeah, yeah. 
But uh, anyways, that's enough about me. So you have the existential moment, and that's when you approach your father and go, okay, I'm ready to, to, to for your help? A little bit. I mean, I, you know, I walked away from it, and I had a, a kind of philosophical, you know, uh, awakening where I realized that so much of what I was um, clinging to with the job at MTV was ego-based. Uh-huh. Like, I was really enjoying the perks of getting into you know, bars and restaurants and, um, having a kind of Dude, it's great. notoriety that got me stuff. Yeah. And it's a nice thing to have. I know. I just, like it just today, I just got like these boots sent to me and I was so excited about it. And I've bought boots from this place before. I love the company mm-hmm. and I Instagrammed them. And then all of a sudden some assholes are like shill much. I'm like, go fuck yourself. This is barter, right. baby. I fucking, yeah. you know, what do you think we're Listen, doing Listen, if it's going to land on your doorstep, what are you going to do about I like it? Presents. They, shoes fit, I like presents. I like presents. Put the boots on. Yeah, man. You know, so, but I realized that that is not a way to necessarily live your life. It's one thing if it's happening while you're working, but if this work has stopped bringing you joy, I had to get boots to a point enough. where <laughs> boots aren't enough. Yeah, yeah. And I really said to myself, like, I have to be okay to get a restaurant job or to work in a bookstore or to start, you know, to start a a company that's small and new that is, and not be afraid of what people are going to ask. Right. You know, the, the inevitable, what happens next, which people love to to ask, what are you working on next? And also the fear of failure, dude. I mean, failure, failure, especially when you've been, you know, in, in my case, it was, it was within Canada, but still, you know, you're known for a certain thing. There are expectations. And I think when you walk away from something on camera, yeah, the you know the presumption is that you are destined for something greater right um right. it was realizing that the something greater for me didn't have to be more television it could be something completely different did you really think that though yes yeah i think you had to you had to give i had to give over that ego bullshit in order to be okay with the fact right. that I might not ever work again. You have to, you have, you have, you have to, to let it go. You the have expecta- to let it go. The expectations. Cause there's nothing more desperate than someone who's really just trying their best. And it leads you down strange paths. You end up taking weird jobs that you don't want because it just so happens to be on television. TV is not the be all and end all. And fame is certainly not something to live your life by. So you know, I started a glasses company in that time. No, um, really? where I started. Yeah, oh yeah, we're coming back, baby, too. Coming back in a few months. Um, yeah, started a, a started made designing eyewear. Are you wearing them um, now? I'm not wearing them now. I should. I should be. Who's making those? Um, no, we're, we're not going to be. No one's going to see this. Who makes the ones? You listen, have on you'll the- get a case of them on your doorstep <laughs> in the coming weeks. Thank you. I'm re- <laughs> um. But, you know, it was about trying new things. I am, I quest for, I have a, a thirst for new experiences and, and new, and to me, starting a company from the ground up, sourcing the production company, sourcing the people who are going to facilitate the eyewear. Wow. How are we going to sell it? What, were, what are we going to do? That to me is like valuable skills in one way or another. Like I couldn't imagine um, doing that. It brought me so much joy, which is why, you know, once the show happened, I had to put it on the back burner. But now we're coming now we're coming back with some would, some new frames. So it would have known that yeah, that 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 uh, Schitt's Creek was sort of a placeholder until you got your eyeglass company back. <laughs> exactly. 
in the big grand scheme of my life, Schitt's Creek was nothing more than just some time <laughs> taken up before the glasses came back. So, uh, so okay, how long do you do the glasses, and what? How does that? How do you like? What do you hit a wall with that and go like, wait, maybe I can write television? What happened to that dream? <laughs> well, I was writing simultaneously. Okay, and you know, I think like. You know, a, a lot of my actor friends, they they have other jobs on the side to take their mind off of the pressure of constantly having to book jobs. Right. That really was ultimately what this started out as. I was really giving a lot of my time and effort into building a business so that I didn't have to confront the the terror of of the reality that I was not booking right jobs in right. the audition rooms Were like you... i am a terrible auditioner i can't terrible yeah i can't do it rattling with fear mm. at one point a casting director told me to take a step outside take a couple deep breaths and come back in that's how bad it got so at the same time that's so funny was, so you, you know, they sent you out to do that i just pictured you going out oof. and you're like okay and you go you take a couple deep breaths and you walk back in and they go thank you <laughs> thank you very much We've, we've seen enough, um, which let's be honest, they probably had. It was not good. Uh -huh. um, so, you know, I, I needed something to distract from that. And at the same time, I also knew that I needed to start writing something for myself to showcase what I could or potentially couldn't do as an actor. Right. Um, but I wasn't getting it in an audition, so I had to get it somewhere else. So it became this kind of simultaneously building the show and my, my eyewear company. And then when the show got picked up and it became this kind of all consuming um, experience, I had to say, well, I'm not going to let the glasses quality drop. So let's just put that on hold. There's nothing binding us to, to a timeline. What was the company called? DL eyewear. Okay. They're just glasses that I wear every day. And I think, you know, for, for me coming off of MTV, a lot of people were asking me where I got my glasses. Cause I wear these kind of slightly more statement, plastic frames yeah and i felt a little uncomfortable telling a you know a 13 year old in saskatchewan to go out and spend 400 bucks on a pair of tom ford glasses yeah so there had to be a middle ground you know for me it was let's try and find that all right so how does like how do you you and your father eugene uh start mm -hmm. you know the the process of creating the show I had, in a way, I think, I, I attribute this now, I didn't at the time, but I attribute it in a way to, to working on the hills. I think for so many years, I had been immersed in a culture of wealth and uh, access and excess um, that had penetrated my brain in a way that I felt like I needed to explore from a slightly more analytical standpoint. Yeah. So the show became an exploration of what would it look like now that culturally we have the housewives and the Kardashians and, you know, it was the Hills at the time. What did, what, what would it look like if these families, these people that we have become so intimately acquainted with the kind of wealth that we had never really known before outside of a lifestyles of the rich and famous, what would happen if one of these families were to lose their money? What would that look like? What would, what would the satirical approach to that be? Um, and I, I didn't want it done in a kind of sitcom format. I didn't want to go too slapstick or broad with it. I wanted it to feel grounded and real and nurtured in a way that was, you know, sensitive and, 
and funny, but in a way that that really had guts to it. Right. So I went to my dad, knowing that I, you know, he, he his his genre of comedy is so caring and so realized um, that I felt like he could be a really valuable asset to to this concept. And so we started talking and for the first time I had come to him with an idea yeah. and I think he was just so taken aback by it that he said yes without thinking. Yeah. And so over the course of, you know, three weekends, I would go over to, uh, to my parents' place and my dad and I would sit in the living room and hash out these characters and figure out what the story really was and what would give it life and what would give it a heartbeat. And, and sooner than we knew it, it was a, a show and um, and it was a show that just steadily season after season continued to grow, which I think is such a rare experience. Well, the interesting thing about the show is like, it, you know, they, you had this, you know, a very kind of dedicated uh, viewership right from the get go. Like there was some like almost cultish kind of like, you mm-hmm. know, have you watched Shit's Creek? And I'm like, no, I haven't. Like, oh, you got to watch. Like, there was those people out there, <laughs> right. you know, like really championing the show as true fans of it. And it did its entire run on on CBC. Yeah, CBC in Canada and then Pop TV in America. And then after the first two seasons on Pop, it was also introduced to the Netflix world um, internationally. I believe, um, or at least in a handful of international countries. And so it, I think the combination of having the show premiere on pop and then six months later premiere on Netflix allowed for, for us to constantly be around the water cooler, I guess, sure. because you had your audience who had found it way back when watching it in real time. And then you have the people who are loyal Netflix viewers catching on and, and really championing it six months later. And it, we couldn't have asked for a better rollout, particularly because we didn't have huge marketing budgets and we had, there's no money in this show. Like it's not a, it's not a hugely profitable venture. Right. So we, we, in a way, this, the success of this show is so tied to clo- so closely tied to the enthusiasm, uh, of the fan base and the fact that people told their friends and, and made it a thing because without it, we wouldn't, I mean, you know, we don't have that kind of budget. We don't, you know, we're not Maisel. Right. Right. But, it, but you know, it's amazing that the, the sort of structure of it, that you have this incredibly wealthy family in this incredibly compromised position at this, you know, hotel in a small town with weirdos around, you know, you, mm-hmm. you would think like, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's almost a classic television structure you know like fish out of water weirdness but it's such a simple pitch yeah it is i mean it is and then i think it's i think it was the choice to never make it too trendy yeah um there's a timelessness that we really wanted with the show we never wanted that's why you'll never see a ton of cell phones people are not on their phones a lot obviously if there's a joke built in sure but we really tried i think you know my dad um was a huge fan of the honeymooners. And when we were, you know, originally talking about the show, a lot of the references were not contemporary references. A lot of the references were Beverly Hillbillies and the honeymooners and Mayberry and all of these kind of timeless worlds that were so insular and, and specific. Right. And yet the sentiment of those worlds was so loving and open and caring that 
there's a timelessness to watching it. Obviously, it's you know. Oh, so that's interesting it, that you it dates had... itself a bit, but there was definitely a deliberate choice to to try and err on the side of classic television versus right um, Breaking Bad. Breaking Bad. Yeah. No, no, and it also gives you the opportunity to kind of have that to create an ensemble that is really working together almost every episode. Right. And, and you develop that vibe and there's a there's a sense mm-hmm. of theater to it because you're you know, you're you're the, the sort of expanse of it is very limited. You know, like, mm-hmm. you know, there and, and, and there's a way to do that where you don't where it seems sort of seamless. You know, it's not yeah. like a joke delivery system, but the characters are so defined that you can just watch them forever. Really? I think that's part of it is is being on networks that have really allowed for us to have that kind of freedom in the storytelling. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sure you experienced that on, on your show as well. My show was like a weird experiment, but I did, I did have freedom. That is true. And that's what led to it being yeah. so special. Yeah. It's definitely I think that's special, why yeah. audiences are, audiences are getting slightly more sophisticated because they've been allowed shows to get, to get freedom. I think it's the network mentality of sort of stifling shows into what a network believes a mass audience wants that really sort of held it held back shows or compromised the integrity of, of certain shows. So I think to be aligned with a network that let us do our weird, you know, show for six years, yeah. it, it just goes to show that people will find it and, and champion it. And, and I don't think our show based on ratings would have lasted even three episodes on a, on a network. And, and, and you, why'd you stop it? Cause I stopped my show Marin after four seasons mm-hmm. very deliberately because I was like, what else are we going to do with this? Let's make the last season weird as fuck. And, and, <laughs> and, and that's it. I'm done. It wasn't like I was making a yeah. fortune. What was your reason? I think it's, I mean, I, I think it's exactly the same reasons. This was not, you know, it's, it's hard to say at the end of the day, we, I really respected the show. I respect the show and I respect the viewers. And I think when you have viewers that are tuning into your show for season after season, that's a lot of time that people are taking out of their lives to support something that you're making. Were you turning it out quicker than there because of the way you were shooting it? They didn't have to wait a year, right? No, no, it was a year. Oh, it was. Okay. Yeah. Every like June, January, I think it aired. Right. Um, but then every six months it would air on Netflix. So it gave the impression that it was, it was just that we were pumping out episodes, but it was just the same season, just re-airing on another platform. But I didn't ever want to get to a point where our audience was turned off of the show because the quality went down. I think that's when you lose your audience forever. All of the shows that I return to, all of the shows that I speak so lovingly about were shows that have a legacy and that legacy was created by having really thoughtful and carefully considered seasons from front to back. Those are the shows that I return to. All the shows that overstayed their welcome, I never go back to because why Why would you ever want to do that when you were soured on the experience? So knowing that we had this loyal fan base, it felt, it just didn't feel right to to squeeze more out of the show than I knew was there. That's good. Um, That's like, yeah, I mean, you seem to be able to make these kind of decisions for yourself. I just think, I mean, it's not about the, I mean, in a way it's, it's afforded me a nice life, Yeah. but it's not, that's not what's keeping us going. I mean, for my dad and I, the most important thing in our first season was making sure that the show was as direct a reflection 
of the show that we wanted to make as possible. Right. Because closure comes when you know that you've done exactly what you wanted to do. Right. And it's the audience that's deciding, no, nah, I don't like it, or maybe I do. But you as the creator know that you've done everything you can. It's only once once the once I think the art gets tampered with that you end up go, you know, struggling with if only things had been done differently. No, no, absolutely. You know, having the control and, and having, you know, the sense of uh, clarity around you know, knowing that it's you don't want it to be tapped out um, yeah. or, or ridiculous. I mean, that was really for me. But it, for me, it also became about the money just like it wasn't about me making money, but we couldn't really grow the show in a creative <laughs> direction because they weren't giving us any more really, really much more production money. And, yeah. and then it becomes sort of like, well, if we really can't do these things to expand the creativity of the show even just to get a song, um, mm -hmm. why do it? You, you know, like, right. uh, and also like, I don't, I didn't set out to make a refillable format, you know, to just, yeah. so yeah. And, and I, I, I think that almost any TV show, I think, you know, four to six seasons is plenty. Well, I also think that I don't know when, unless it's Degrassi, it Degrassi the, needs to keep going. Degrassi needs 55 seasons, <laughs> but I, I don't know when it became the norm to have a, a 10 season run that profit it's just a like how much if, if we're still making money why stop this thing i get exactly but i think a lot of people get gl like glamored by the potential of you know what 10 seasons of a show but could I, bring i think that shit and is, oftentimes i think it's over dude yeah. i think that's over i, I, I do too I, I mean i think like now that the, the the marketplace is so fragmented you know that i think the the it's like who's holding their audience even if it's small and you know and how do exactly. we do it i mean I had a really lovely conversation with Phoebe Waller-Bridge uh, a few months back and you know she was we were talking about TV and making TV and how hard it is when you you know are the person who's really behind it and trying to get it all put all the pieces in place and you know she was just talking about length you know her her fleabag I think was 6 and then 8 episodes yeah um and that's always been something that you know, not to speak on her behalf, but she just had said that, you know, that's a, that's a length that she was comfortable with. Right. A two season run, maybe 11 episodes total or 12. And that is how she tells her stories and what a magnificent story she was able to tell without that kind of right. and, fire and, and as needing an, to tell 9 million episodes. Right. And as an artist, you're like, that's it. That's done. I did that. Now we do yeah. the, now what's, what, what are we doing now? Yeah. And it was really formative for me to have that conversation, too, because I think, you know, you go into these pitch meetings and people want to know that your show has the potential to, like, be a huge cash cow that can go, you know, nine seasons yeah. deep. But to have that conversation and be to, to, to be assured just from from a peer that I really respected to just say, like, you know, do whatever you want to make. Yeah. TV does not have to be yeah. 700 episodes. Sure. It can be as as little or as much as you want it to be. And that was, uh, it was a much needed kind of reassurance. Well, that's nice. So how did it change your relationship with your dad over all these years? of? Well, we started working together. Right. So that changes things <laughs> almost instantly um, because you go from kind of a parent dynamic to a, a business partnership, which is, um, which you can never really see coming. And I think like anything, you try your best to navigate the waters of 
of respectful business partnerships while also trying to sort of put the the personal intimate res- reaction that you would normally have <laughs> from a father and son dynamic keep that out of the room for the most part as best you can um and try and really bring your most professional selves and i feel like we really tried to do that and obviously it you know it it takes a minute to find that footing um but i think for the reason why it worked so well for us is that at the end of the day no matter what conflict we had the show always was at the root of it it was always about the quality of the show and what's the best decision for the show so when it came to conflict resolution inevitably the best idea the one that serviced the show would be the one that was chosen right. so it it really never got bad bad because we were both fighting the same fight right and 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 ultimately it seems like you are actually the more business minded person yeah i'm a bit more cutthroat when it comes <laughs> to sort of just getting to the root of why are we doing this and w- is it worth our time? Yeah. And, you know, and my dad is, is, is much kinder yeah. um, <laughs> to, to sort of reduce it to a, a an emotion. When you discussed the, stopping the show, everybody was good with that. He was good with that. Yeah. I mean, I was ready to stop after five. And then after our fourth season, we were given the option of doing two seasons. Yeah. And I thought, okay, um, 28 episodes feels doable in terms of I get to, to hang out with my friends for two more years because the biggest, you know, the biggest holdup for me in terms of walking away was not getting to work with these people again. Right. We had the most extraordinary experience working on this show. We are so close. It is such a family dynamic at this point between all the actors and our crew for three months of the year, we just had the best time and that was really hard to walk away from especially when you know that chemistry like that doesn't necessarily happen every day right and that the next job might not be quite as loving or supportive um but i do hope that in a way we'll we'll find our way back to each other yeah even if i have to just write another show and he's working on the show that my girlfriend is directing oh great yeah kevin can go fuck himself yeah that's going to be so great. I can't wait to see it. Yeah, she is when everyone gets back to work. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah, yeah exactly. And so is your dad going to be a, uh, your partner in the glasses business as well? or <laughs> No, although he does wear them exclusively. Oh, he is my proudest, uh, biggest supporter. All of his glasses, um, he uh, he every single pair of sunglasses are mine. Uh-huh. He, you know, in Toronto, he goes to all the baseball games and would give my glasses to the baseball players. Uh-huh. Um, so that was very fun. Um, you know, he's yeah. just the spokesperson. So I guess in a way he is working for the company. So now are you really all going to exclusively focus on your glasses company now? Or are you going to? No, okay. I have a couple. I have a couple shows that I'm developing right now. And um, it looks like a, a feature, um, which is kind of exciting. And, you know, at this point, everything is a big question mark, yeah, as is sure. this industry as a whole. You right. can never really proclaim anything until you're actually shooting it. And even then, yeah. who knows? Yeah. But I have managed to put a team together and, you know, the, the glasses are something that I've always really been passionate about. I love design. I love the, the, the business side of things. And I, um, I've managed to get a couple people together who are helping me through the process. And it's been really it's been really great. So we'll release them when it's time. Um, and the great thing about what we're doing is that it's not tied to any timeline. We're going to put out a collection. And if people like it, great. We'll put out another one. But there's no 
real expectation associated with it other than just you know, you know? given given the pandemic i mean that that might be the primary business we, we don't know yet you, mm-hmm. you, it seems like you know people mm-hmm. are still buying things to where that they can see through as exactly because they can do that from their yeah. house we have not canceled right. eyewear up eyewear yet um so who knows but it's been uh it's been something that's been keeping me going through these uh through these days good good well it was great talking to you man likewise what a thrill to uh to get to do this with you yeah it was great and i really appreciate you doing it i'm, I'm getting used to doing it like this i think we're all getting used to talking like this and i mm-hmm. i'm finding that it definitely makes a difference to see you oh yeah even though we don't use it it's still it's very it's good for me Oh no! I mean, I did I did a um, a podcast a couple about six months ago where it was just radio, yeah. and it was we- it was a weird experience. Well, yeah, I've done it's I've not... done interviews like that, but you can't you never know what someone's up to. You, at least you, you know when you're looking at somebody, you can somewhat hold them mm-hmm. conversationally accountable. I mean, if you're just <laughs> you mean like if a laptop and a telephone were just happening as the conversation was going, yeah, yeah, someone was just on, filling up their Instacart, sure. Yeah, exactly. You, right. you can do that. Right. You know what I mean? Such a fan, Mark. Thank and you. And thank you for all the great work you're doing. You too, man. That was Dan Levy. What a fine young man. The final season of Shit's Creek just ended. You can watch season one through five on Netflix. I'm going to do an old riff on my guitar uh, from uh, the soundtrack of uh, Sword of Trust. But I, I added some stuff to it. I mean, it's a little different. What, do, like you would know? I'm sorry, that's, that soundtrack's not available because almost all of the pieces are about a minute and a half long to two minutes. I, I wasn't planning on the soundtrack, but the song, though, I should release that somehow. I guess I'm just thinking out loud. Okay, here we go. Boomer lives.